What up, Hume? How we doing? Hey, what's up? Oh, no, I broke something. No, I'm just joking. How we doing, everybody? Everyone good? Good. Well, hey, my name is Johnny Artavanis. I am from the Los Angeles area. Don't throw rocks at me. Um, I'm a Laker fan. Do you guys like the Celtics here? Okay, I'll start praying for you now. By the end of this week, that's my goal, to convert you to becoming a Laker fan. Uh, I have one wife and one daughter. Do we have a photo of them? Oh, there's my wife and daughter. Uh, that's Lily. We got one daughter on the way. She's holding a little ultrasound deal. Lily, we got her uh, sizing chart back from the doctor. That's what I'm most pumped on right now in life is like, how, what's, what's the development? She's in the 99th percentile, so we're pretty pumped about that. Thanks, Joey. And she wears the shades all the time. We can't get her to take them off. Um, what else do you guys want to know about me? My wife, Katie, I met her at Hume Lake, so I worked there for a number of years. That's a, a campus in California. I love her so much. I hate mayonnaise so much because mayonnaise... The, the Bible reads something like Satan ruined everything and then he made mayonnaise right away. So I hate that. Um, like basketball, like golf, but I'm a terrible golfer. Anything else you guys want to know? Ice cream flavor. I think probably cookies and cream. Uh, I'm a cookies and cream type of guy. Um, I eat the same thing almost every single day though. Every day at lunch, I go home, I make eggs with a piece of sourdough little lean ground turkey, some red onion in there. Come on, you guys like that? No? Does anybody here not eat eggs? No, I actually do like poached eggs though, but uh, anyways, that's enough about me. Tell me about you. Everyone give me your name on the count of three. One, two, three. What was your name? I heard you, I heard you above the rest. What? My name's Jeanette. Jeanette? Like Jeanette. I like that, okay. Wow, Jeanette. Hey, okay. Well, hey, tonight I want to look with you at God's word and I want to look at our theme. You guys just watched the opening theme video. Each of those videos before I talk, each of the next four sessions kind of set the, the theme for what we're about to talk about in God's word. And tonight I want to keep it simple for you. I want to tell you three things that are true about God and then th three things that are true about you. And then we're just going to look briefly at one guy named the Apostle Paul. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll start there this evening, and then we'll jump around a little bit. And then while you turn, can I pray once more for us as we open the Bible? God, we are so thankful, Lord, uh, that you are a God who hears our prayers. Lord, we ask that you would do a great work um, through your Holy Spirit. We know that there's no amount of human eloquence or preaching power that can transform a heart without the power of your spirit. God, there are many people here that they don't know how they got here, or maybe they're going through difficult things at home, maybe they're struggling with sin in their life that no one else knows about but you. God, whatever journey a student is on that brought them here, Lord, I pray that they would encounter the living God in his living word this weekend. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name, amen. All right, Ephesians 4, 17, Paul is writing a letter to a real church at a real time in history. It's important if you've grown up in the church that you realize that when we look at the Bible, we're not looking at some antiquated document. This isn't like the Epic of Gilgamesh or Beowulf that I studied in 10th grade English. This is a real story, and Paul is writing to a real church 
in modern day Turkey. And he's gonna describe for them how the Christian life is to be lived. Our theme is called Recrafted. And what he's going to tell you if you're a Christian or maybe you're like, I don't know how I got here, but I I don't even know if I believe in God. Well, I'm glad you're here. But he's gonna define for us this week what a Christian really looks like. And I'm just gonna use verse 17 as an introductory launch pad for us this evening because I need to set the stage before we continue on tomorrow morning. Verse 17 says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. We'll stop there for a moment. Before we really continue, we need to understand that this guy Paul was in many ways what you would look at as a terrorist uh, for many Christians. He got saved, but before he became a Christian, he was a guy that was motivated to go to village after village after village to kill every single Christian that he could ever come into contact with. It says in the book of Acts that Paul was going from place to place, throwing into jail women and children, anybody that would profess the name of Jesus. He is very similar to what we would look at as a terrorist today that was bombing buildings or bombing churches. Paul was the most feared man on earth amongst the Christians. But he got saved and now he says he is a minister of the gospel and a minister of God. And really tonight, I don't really know what your background is and the things of the Lord. Knowing the scripture, we just sang songs and maybe you're like, I don't even know what I'm singing, but everyone seems to be singing. I wanna lay the framework for us this evening. Who is the God that we're singing about? Who is the God that we're singing to? Now, have you guys ever seen the movie Princess Bride, you guys know that movie? <laughs> Janetta likes that movie. Now in the movie, in the movie The Princess Bride, does anybody remember how the story starts? It starts with the grandpa telling the story and then it kind of takes us back from there. That type of thing where you start with the movie where it, it says not a long time ago and then it'll read a story. It happens in other movies like if you've ever seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, there's this account where he's about to win all the money but then the whole movie at that point is a rewind so that you have to understand what's happening at the beginning. But in the movie The Princess Bride, he tells a story and then he takes his grandchild back and really what we have to do whenever we open the Bible, We need to understand not only where we're at in the middle of the story, but we have to go to the beginning of the story or we'll be lost every step along the way. You can't start a movie in the middle, and if you're new to understanding who God is or the Bible, you can't understand the middle until you understand the beginning. So we need to rewind, not just a scene or two in scripture, but to the very beginning. Now, if you are uh, thinking and have your head turned on at all, it's understandable that you and I live in a broken world. We live in a world where people get cancer, people get disease, people get divorced. Maybe some of you and your own families have been the recipient of the tragedy of divorce. Maybe you've watched people die that you love. Maybe you have crippling anxiety. I'm around students every single week and um, my time with them is often limited. But one thing that's resounding is that people are anxious, people are fearful, maybe you struggle with pornography, maybe you've been involved in such sin that you now live under a crushing weight of guilt. But what you need to understand about all these things when you look at the world of cancer and disease and decay is that is not the way things were supposed to be. And maybe you go, yeah, I know this, but you need to understand this is not the way things were supposed to be. And all of creation now, it says in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning 
to go back to what it was like at the beginning of the story, meaning that the cosmos is fractured and every single person really that's thinking knows that there's something wrong with the world. And so in order to understand what went wrong, we have to understand how things began. And so to understand how things began and to understand the God that Paul represents, we need to understand the first words of your Bible. And if you've grown up in the church, maybe you know these well. And the danger, if you know these words well, is that you've become so familiar to them that they've become just, you've become apathetic to them. And if you've never heard these words, in the opening lines of scripture are the essential components of what the philosopher wants to know, what the scientist wants to know, and what the theologian wants to know. Who am I? Why am I here? And what is my destiny? All is grounded in the opening words of your Bible. And if you miss this, you miss everything. It says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One man used to say that there are three possible explanations for everything that is alive today. One is that it is self-created. The other two is that it is eternal. Or three, it was something or someone that was created by something that is eternal. Meaning that there's nothing that can actually be self-created. You can't originate yourself. There has to be maybe someone that is eternal. And then everything else in life is the object or creation of a created being or of a eternal being who creates everything. And this is what we see in the opening pages of scripture. But the world that we live in, in California or in New England or New York, wherever you want to live or wherever you want to end up, believes that these opening lines are ridiculous. Meaning that they want you to believe that the intelligent thing to believe about your life is that you are a cosmic accident. You're a grown-up germ and you are some goo that went through the zoo and now you're you with a brain and you think and you can create and the iPhone and everything that happens out of human ingenuity is all a product of human accident. And they want you to believe that to believe in God is stupid and idiotic. But here's what the Bible's going to teach is ridiculous. What's ridiculous is to understand that right now you are on a ball that is two-thirds full of water spinning a thousand miles an hour this way and you're 93 million miles away from the sun that keeps you spinning. If you were 93,001 miles away, you'd spin off and freeze into the galaxy. If you were one mile closer, you would be burned up. And science and your teachers and your public schools want you to think that this is all an accident. If you got in your car right now and started driving 65 miles an hour, it would take you three lifetimes to get to the sun. And so we're operating in a big world, and this is to them all an accident. It would take you 6,500 years to drive your car to Pluto. Now all of these things I, I, I think are amazing, but we live in a world, and this is what you wanna understand about God being a creator, that our next closest star system to us when we talk about God being creator, is 25 trillion miles away. Here's our galaxy. Joe, do you have a picture of this? Of the stars? Now, this is the Milky Way. This is our closest galaxy, and this is where we are. But the God of the Bible, it says, looks at all of these stars, and it says in Psalm 147.4 that he determines the number of stars, and he gives to all of them their names. The God that created all things 
doesn't just fling things into existence. He's operating, and you saw it in the video, he's like a potter, and he is orchestrating and controlling all things, and the Bible says for two reasons, for his glory and our good. Regarding the stars, it also says in Isaiah 40, verse 26, it says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his power and strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now God looks at the remotest stars and the remotest sky, and it's not like he's just saying like in Lion King, they're, fire, they're fireflies. No, he says, I give to all of them their name. Now, here's how the Bible describes the immensity of the stars in Genesis. In Genesis 1:16, it says God made two great lights the one to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. That's just he made the sun and the moon. And then here's this throwaway line to describe how God made the stars. And he made the stars also. Countless galaxies, trillions and trillions and trillions of stars in the Bible when God created them, it's just an afterthought. It's because God is getting somewhere in the book that he is beginning to write. He wants you to track with them, meaning that the stars that are wonderful and glorious and you can never reach, and if you got into a spaceship, you can never, ever, ever reach the infinite space that God has created. It's, oh yeah, he made the sun, he made the moon, and oh yeah, he made those stars. So what's the point here? Well, on the tiniest speck in the universe, planet Earth, the greatest drama in human history is about to unfold. And on that tiny speck, the crown jewel of God's creation is birthed, is originated, is created. Now, if you were to ask the question, what's the crown jewel of God's creation? He made everything in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is the crown jewel of God's creation? Is it a planet? Is it a nebula, a galaxy, Mount Everest, a snow leopard? Definitely not other types of cats. Amen. Amen. Here is the crown jewel of God's creation in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. God, out of the dust, would make Adam and Eve, we'll see in Genesis 1 and 2. And he'll say, we'll read here in scripture, that he made them in his own image. In Isaiah 64, we get the idea that is behind our theme videos, that God is the potter and we're the clay because he is literally forming Adam and Eve out of the dust, or Adam out of the dust and then Eve out of Adam's ribs. Now, I, had a, I told you I have a daughter, Lily, and I think you guys are mature enough to handle this, and I think it's, it's, under, it's, it's helpful for you guys to know. When I went to the doctor, when my wife was pregnant with Katie, they want you to take a test to find out if there's anything wrong with your baby. They'll be like, hey, do you wanna know if your baby's mentally all there, if there's anything else gonna be wrong, you know, problem, and I'm saying, no, we don't need to. Why, because we're gonna keep the baby either way. But at the doctor, they'll say, hey, do you wanna know if there's any issues with your baby because, and I say, well, why? And they say, well, if, if there's something wrong, you can just abort the baby. But here's what I want you to know about what it means to be made in God's image. 
I have a cousin who had a baby named Rhodes. Rhodes is severely Down syndrome. He's now five years old, but in many ways he'll be as dependent in 20 years as he was when he is a baby. But in the eyes of God, because Rhodes is made in the image of God, he is more valuable to God than Fusachi Pegasus. Now who's Fusachi? Everyone say Fusachi. Here's Fusachi. Joey, where's my horse? This is Fusachi, yep. So Fusachi, who's this guy? He is the most expensive horse ever sold. He's $70 million horse. His racing career was impressive, and he went on to win, it says in an article, nine starts and six wins, and he was bought by the Irish breeder Coolmore Stud, and he is now the pinnacle horse at the largest thoroughbred breeding operation in the world in Kentucky. Thanks, Joey. Now, this horse is immensely valuable, but I want you to understand something. Let's go back to my baby cousin, Rhodes. Because Rhodes is made in the image of God, Rhodes is far more valuable than Fusachi, Seabiscuit, National Velvet, and all of the horses in the world. And it would be a greater tragedy for something to happen to Rhodes than for all of the animals in all of the world to die. You know why? Because you and I are made in the image of God. And what you saw in the video is, 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 is so helpful. It says there's nothing intrinsically valuable about the pot, is there? But what's valuable about, about the pot is the potter himself who speaks and who provides and forms his creation with a level of value. I use the horse as an example because in the scripture, God seemingly pats himself on the back for creating the horse. In the book of Job, he says, Job, did you create the horse that loves battle? Do you know statistically, battle horses, when they see a front line of an enemy battle, they start to run faster. And God looks at Job and says, did you create the horse in this way? God pats himself on the back for all of his creation. He looks at all of it and says, this is mine. But there's nothing that brings God greater joy than those whom he has made with a God-like deposit. Being made in the image of God means that God has invested in you something that only you and him share and nothing else in the animal kingdom. A mind. And God looks at that and says, everything is good. So the first thing you need to understand about God is that God is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things. Second thing you need to understand is that God is holy. Now we sing about God's holiness. We often speak about God's holiness, but what does it mean that God is holy? Well, A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's his most famous line, but this is true for you. If you were to ask the question or re-engineer the question, what's the most important thing about Red Sweatshirt, what's your name? Kayla? Okay, if you were to say, what's the most important thing about me? The most important thing about you is what you think of God. When, when someone says, hey, what do you think about God? What comes into your mind is the most important thing about you. And everything in your life regarding who you believe God to be hinges on what your view of God's word is. 
Because we live in a world, right, when speaking of God, people say things like, that's not the God I choose or want to believe in, right? Which means that people that in our environment, in our culture, we end up coming up with a God that is preferential and imaginative rather than biblical and accurate. People say, I don't want to believe in a God that's just. We'll talk about this tomorrow morning. I don't want to believe in a God that would punish sin. I don't want to believe in a God that wouldn't allow me to do this or that. But it doesn't matter what you believe about God. What matters is how God has revealed himself to be. And when God reveals himself in scripture, the way that he reveals himself over and over again is that he is holy. He is not some sort of bigger version of you and I. He is a holy God. Now, what does it mean that God is holy? Now, when we speak about God's holiness, it's not just that he is quantitatively larger than us. When I say quantitative, quantity means number. He is qualitatively different than us, meaning that God is not a bigger and better version of you. He's not a genie. He's not like a 10-foot version of you or I with muscles that isn't sinful. When what speaks about God's holiness, the scripture, it's talking about a qualitative difference, meaning that he is nothing like you or I. More than any other attribute, if you want to know how God defines himself in scripture, where he's now in, in our world been reduced to only love, God defines himself by his holiness more than any other attribute in scripture. He has a holy book, he has a holy mountain, he has a holy spirit, he has a holy people, he has a holy son, and he has a holy heaven. And the only people that dwell with him for all of eternity are holy people. Without holiness, it says in Hebrews, no man shall see the Lord. In Exodus 15, 11, the question is asked, who is like the Lord, majestic in holiness? What's the answer to the question, who is like the Lord? No one, because you are not almost God. And God never points outside of himself to define himself because there's nothing and no one even close to him. He doesn't say, if you wanna understand me, think about this and then times it by 100. He says, there is nothing and no one like me. Third thing to understand about God is that God is sovereign. Number one, God is a creator. Number two, God is holy. And number three, God is sovereign. Now in the video, when we look at the potter, it says, you know, we see that he is kind of forming and shaping all things. I want you to think for me, anybody play in like an, an orchestra here? I want you to think about God when he's sovereign as the composer or the conductor of the universe. But it's not like there's an instrument that plays out a tune and he goes, ah, come on, second violin. No, everything that is happening is happening according to the sovereign plan of God. God's sovereignty, when, he wants, when God wants to declare his holiness, he declares his sovereignty. And here's what God's sovereignty means. It means that God is the boss of all creation. And that he's not at a war with Satan. It's not a tug, you know, it's not a tug of war trying to get his way. He's not pushing enemy kings to do what he wants. Oh please, oh please. It means that he absolutely rules. Here's how God defines himself. Isaiah 46, verse nine. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Okay, God says there is no one like me. And in the next verse, he's going to describe exactly why no one else is like God. Do you wanna know what makes God different than you? Well, then listen to the voice of scripture. God says, I declare the end from the beginning. Meaning, I know what the end of the movie is like from the beginning of the movie. 
I'm playing everything out exactly how I want. He says, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. When God wants you to understand his otherness, he declares his sovereignty. Is it anybody's birthday today? Anybody? This week? Anybody? What's your name? Isa? Now, at the lake, sometimes at Hume Lake, I'll bring someone up when it's their birthday, and I'll go, all right, anybody's birthday? And I'm like, yeah, you know? And they'll get, I'm like, what's your name? Stacy. Okay, Stacy. And, you know, there's two different types of people. What's your name? Yeah, it's my birthday. What's your name? Chad. Okay, Chad. So come on up. And there's two types of different people. I'll have everyone sing. There's like a thousand kids there. And they're all go, okay, everyone sing. And it'll be like, happy birthday. And Stacy's just like this, you know, right? She's just, <laughs> right, right? And there's Chad. And Chad's going, happy birthday to Chad, right? And he sings to himself because you kind of have to own it. There's two different types of ways. You can either be the self-deprecating, like, thank you, thank you, elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist, touch your chest, blow, guess, no, right, never mind. Or you can be like Chad. Now, when we talk about God, and we talk about his glory and we say, oh God, you're holy and you deserve all of the glory. In our minds, we sometimes think that God is up in heaven like Stacy, going, it's okay, guys. Settle down, ah, uh, shucks. Thank you, thank you. Oh God, you're glorious. No, no, no. <laughs> Please direct and deflect your attention and your focus and your worship somewhere else. But here's what you need to understand about God. When we sing his praise and when creation trumpets his glory, God is not in heaven going, oh, thank you. No, he says, turn up the volume. For all of the world to know I am God and there is no other. God is not self-deprecating. He is jealous for his own glory. Meaning that when you give glory to something or someone else other than God, God says that glory belongs to me. And when God wants you to understand who he is, he's not saying I'm kind of nice, I'm kind of this. He says no, I want you to understand exactly how different I am than you. Because your life cannot be lived until you have an accurate understanding of who I am. Because you will never know you until you get me. You are my creation. And your God that made you is not just unlike you. He's not just morally pure. He is a God clothed in righteousness. Right now, it says the seraphim in Isaiah 6 are shouting back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says when God speaks, the foundations of heaven shake. God is not a mild-mannered, kind of like, namby-pamby savior. When people understand that God is holy, we, grow, we live in an environment where people go, God's my homeboy. God is not your homeboy. He's a holy God, and it says he sits on a throne, lofty and exalted. We have far too casual a view of God, and it's rippled through our culture, and God, through his word, wants you to understand, if you've grown up in the church, or if you think you know every answer, I'm a holy God, he says in scripture. I'm a sovereign God, which means that not only do I number every star in the sky, it says in John 10, you are known by name by God. Did you know this about God? Augustine once said, oh God, I am a puzzle and a mystery to myself. 
But to God, you are not a puzzle or a mystery. He knows every nook and cranny of your hidden heart. He knows every hair on your head. In the book of Psalms, it says that he holds your tears in a bottle so that the God who creates the stars and upholds the universe by the word of his power in Hebrews 1 is the same God that knows every trial you've ever gone through, who has orchestrated every event in, what? Uh, (laughs) Orchestrated every event in your life to this very point. And until you have a magnified view of God, you will always have a magnified or potentially diminished view of yourself because there's two extremes. One is, I mean nothing, or I am everything. And both of those reveal a deficient understanding of the potter. Because when pots that are made by the potter start to think that they are the point of creation, that's pride. But a pot can also go, I I just, I matter for no reason. But the scripture frees us from both types of flawed thinking. God's sovereignty is, illustrated for us in Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Here's what God's sovereignty means. It means that God has never been surprised. He's never learned anything. He's never had to revise his plan. He's never had to adapt his plan. He's not like Bill Belichick calling audibles. Oh man, Jimmy did this. Okay, Gabriel, Michael, scramble. No, God's sovereignty means he is on the throne and all of creation does his bidding. The reason God knows the future is not because he has a crystal ball. The reason God knows the future is because he is ordaining the future. He's not observing what is coming to pass. He is orchestrating what comes to pass If God's not sovereign, God is not God. And so when we look at God as a potter, that is the absolute prerequisite to him being God. And God's sovereignty is also necessary for us to, for any of his other attributes to have any meaning to us, meaning if God loved you but weren't sovereign, he wouldn't be able to bring about the things that he wanted to do for you in his love. If God were wise and knew what was best to do, but not sovereign and had the power to execute his wisdom, then his wisdom would be of no meaning to us. In scripture, God is sovereign over nature. In the book of Jonah, I love the, I love the book of Jonah, I think that was your theme last year. Fish, wind, plants, and the sun and worms all do the bidding of God according to the will of God. It says that he commands every single wave in Job 38. He asked Job, have you ever in your life told the waves thus far you shall come and no further? Are you the one that dips the water clouds? Are you the one that calls the sparrow to sing? Are you the one that knows every time a bird dies? God is in complete control of nature and he's sovereign over it. Meaning every single time you see a drop of rain fall from the sky, God is saying that That's not slipping my mind that does my bidding. God is sovereign over nations. This president was elected by God. The next president will be elected by God. This doesn't negate human responsibility, but it says in Proverbs that the king's heart is like channels of water. It says in Daniel that the Lord is the one appointing kings. 
and all of human history is pointing towards and orchestrating in this grand symphony of God doing what he wants for his glory and our good. God is sovereign over evil. God is not the author of evil, but he certainly allows it. In Genesis, when Joseph, if you've heard the story, how he sold into slavery with his brothers, Joseph doesn't come back to his brothers and say, you unbelievable jerks, if God hadn't taken this bad situation and turned it into a good situation, we'd all be toast. What does he say? He says, what you meant for evil, God what? Yeah, I think sometimes we think it says, what you meant for evil, God turned into good. But what it says is that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you know that there is nothing in your life that has slipped the mind of God? And far from this being something that would frustrate a Christian, this is the only way that they can have any comfort in a life full of challenges and difficulty because only if God is working through our troubles and through our trials can we have any hope that he will redeem this and he will transform us into his image and that it'll be used for his glory. Spurgeon once said that there is no attribute of God more comforting to a Christian than that of God's sovereignty. He says this is the pillow you can go and rest your head upon every night. Maybe some of you come from divorced families you can, you know, maybe some of you have gone through great sickness. Maybe you've lost friends. You can lay your head on the pillow every night and say, I don't understand anything, but I am sure thankful, God, you know everything. God is also sovereign over time. Time from cradle to cro- from the cradle to the coffin. Your life is in the hand of God God not only commands the sunrises and ordains the sunsets, but he has already ordained how many of those sunrises and sunsets you will experience in your life. It says in Psalm 139, you ordained your your days for me before one of them came to be. Sometimes we say, oh man, this person's life was cut short. Oh, they died, it was tragic. But to God, no one dies prematurely. And this is because he's the potter. You know, the videos are cool because they help us to understand a few things about God. God is the creator, he's holy, and he's sovereign. Now what does this mean for you and I as we close? God being the creator and you being created by God flies in the face of everything that the public school system today would try to teach you. If you think about what people try to believe either from an evolutionary process, it means that you have no inherent dignity or value. You truly are worthless if you are a grown-up germ. You understand that when people say, what's the meaning of life? There is no meaning in life if we are all just cosmic accidents. There is no meaning. But because God is the creator, and not just of everything, but of you, It says in Psalm 139 that you specifically were woven together in your mother's womb and that when your mother 
was growing large. God was saying, this is my boy. This is my girl. They are created in my image for my glory. God knows your name and he knew your name before time began. Because it says in Ephesians 1 that before he said, let there be light before the mountains, he knew your name. And God's not learning, oh, I gotta catch up on Jake. No, he knows you and he knew you in your embryonic form. So God being the creator means you matter, not because you're awesome, but because of the potter who made you. Secondly, because God is holy, your greatest need in life is to be holy. We'll talk about this tomorrow, but we live in a broken world. And the only type of people that meet God face to face and are welcomed in are those that share his holiness. And if you look at the mirror of your life, you'll recognize very quickly your life is not that of holiness. And it says in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, which means that we have a massive problem. Third and finally, because God is sovereign, your entire life is in his hands. In Acts 17, Paul's preaching, he says, in him we move and breathe and have our being. Everyone take a deep breath real quick and go, oh, right? Here's what Acts 17 says. It says that that ability to take a breath is a gift from God. And it says that God determines where people live, when people live, and how they live for one reason, that they might feel their way towards God and find him. God is so sovereign over your life that he's maybe orchestrated everything in your life to bring you here this weekend so you would be able to know him personally because he's not a subject to be understood. God's not some theological box that you check. He's a person to know. The Bible has one grand theme. It all points to one person. The Bible's grand theme is Jesus Christ. And the Bible's profound question is do you know him? Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking if you know about him. I'm not asking if your dad's an elder at your church. I'm not asking if you've read about him in history books or know the answers. I'm asking do you know the person of Jesus Christ? And do you actually mean what you're singing? because it's easy to get caught up in emotion. But ask yourself, do I know Jesus Christ as my savior and as my friend? Well, this weekend, I hope you do, and I hope you know I love you and traveled some many thousand miles to be with you because I think there's nothing more important than you knowing the living God. Can I pray for you? God, we are so thankful for your word that teaches us everything we need to know about God and because it teaches us everything we need to know about God, it also teaches us everything we need to know about ourselves. But God, we cannot know us until we know you and when we read the scripture, one of the things that we know quickly is that you're a creator, that you are holy, that you're unlike us and Lord, that you're sovereign, meaning you're orchestrating everything in creation, including my life, for your glory and my good. Lord, I pray for the people here that don't know you. Lord, would you soften their hearts and would you preach a sermon to them through your spirit and through their own conscience of their profound need for Jesus. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.